Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good to see you. As Ben mentioned, Fudd and Jack are out of town this week at the same Sunday, so I get the privilege of teaching from Philippians 2 this morning. So I'm excited um, to just really go through this passage with you and look at ultimately Jesus being lifted up and then our response to that to imitate him in that in our lives. So let me just uh, read the text for us. And I forgot to bring one of those blue Bibles up here, so sorry about that. Uh, But it's going to be Philippians 2, and the text is going to be verses 1 through 11. So if you would stand and we'll read this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Let me just pray for us, and as we sang that first song about the Holy Spirit, just praying that God would send His Spirit in our time together and soften our hearts and grow our love for Christ. So, if you'll pray with me. God, we... We praise you because you're God and you are worthy of it. Um, There is no other besides you. There is no other like you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we we praise you and give you glory this morning. And just pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to understand what you were saying in this text in Philippians 2, that you would soften our hearts to it. It is not in our natural selves to want to live as you've called us to in this text. And so we desperately need you this morning. And and I confess my utter dependence on you as well, that you would speak through me, that you would keep me from error, and that Christ would be exalted, and that you would grow our worship of him, and that would ultimately bring glory to you, Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So these past few weeks... Um, we've been looking at Philippians 1 and looking at the two godly desires of Paul. And the first one was, if he's going to live, he says, it's going to be for Christ. It's going to be consumed with Christ. It's, it's just going to be centered around. Everything's going to be through him and for him. And then he says also that if he's going to live, out of, out of that being for Christ, he's going to do it for the joy of others and for their progress in sanctification, for them to become more like Jesus. But then his other desire, he says, is if he is 
to die, he wants to be with Jesus. And he counts that as gain because he gets to be free from sin, free from away from the presence of God, brought into his presence to enjoy him forever. And so we, we've looked at these two godly desires. And then at the end of chapter 1, we see Paul um, encouraging the Philippians to say, you know, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, live as citizens of heaven. And then we see him say, stand firm, striving side by side, with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And so just seeing this idea of unity. And then in the last couple of verses, he talks about suffering and belief and how those are gifts to the Philippians, gifts from God. And so that kind of brings us to chapter 2, which is this awesome text as we get to see Christ before he became man. And so before we jump into that, I've been thinking about this text and just thinking, you know, what we are called to here is it's not just hard for us to live out, as we'll see, um, but it's literally impossible for us to live out on our own apart from the work of God in our lives. And so the reason is that the core of who we all are, um, apart from Jesus, we want to be like Satan in the sense of we want the glory for ourselves, just like in Isaiah uh, 1414, 14, it, it describes Satan as wanting to be like the Most High, and that led to his fall. Not in the sense of he wants to be like Jesus and conform to his image. He wants the place of God. He wants to reign on the throne of God. He wants to praise and glory for himself. And so we find ourselves apart from Christ in that same, in that same position, that we want to be on the throne of God in our own lives. And, I mean, when you really think about it, we want to be on the throne of everyone else's life. And so it's not just this idea of, you know, I got to change some kind of behavior. We need a desperate heart change that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so um, our prayer this morning is that God would really wreck our view of ourselves and open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus and to be astounded at who he is. And that would lead us to worship by imitating Christ and loving one another and putting each other before ourselves. And so the first thing um, we're going to do is, I just read the text for us, and we're going to start actually in verse 6. And the reason is, because I want us to behold Christ first and foremost. I want us to look at Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, and then how his humility in becoming a man, and then his exaltation. And then out of that, lead us to, okay, what does this mean for us? And so that's why we're going to start in verse 6. And so the first point has four subpoints, but the first main point is just behold Jesus. That's what I want us to do is just see Jesus and be astounded at who he is to be in awe of who he is. And so starting in verse six, the first subpoint under there is behold Jesus in his pre-incarnate state of power and glory. So let me read this for us. It says, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so here in verse 6, this is speaking of Jesus before he became human. This is, uh, as we look, let me just read a few other texts for you, but we're going to see Christ before he took on flesh. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
So that last verse shows Christ taking on flesh. But those first three, we see that Jesus has been in the beginning with God, eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit in perfect fellowship and union together, enjoying each other. And if you look at John 17, verse 5, Jesus prays to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we see Jesus had glory before the world existed. And the world existed before Jesus took on flesh. And so we see Jesus has always existed with the Father and with the Spirit. There is no limit to who he is. We see his eternal, eternally, him eternally existing before he took on flesh. And so, um, in verse 6, when Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, James Boyce helps us understand this word used for form of God here. And he says, it refers both to the inward character of a thing and also to the outward form that expresses its inward character. So, it's referring to who he is uh, at the core of who he is, but also as you see him on the outside. So if we were to behold Christ in his pre-incarnate state, we would see just incredible majesty, incredible glory always there. And we would be falling in his presence, bowing down in worship. And so uh, what Paul is saying here is that Christ has existed always. He has existed with the Father. He has existed with the the spirit and perfect union. And so to seen him, to have seen him in that state would be to have seen him fully at the core of who he is, that he was God. And then he goes on and says in verse six, did not count, even though he was in this form of God, even though he reigned and ruled from eternity past, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. We see Paul exalt Jesus to equality with God. We see him put him on the same plane that Jesus is God. And then we see this glorious truth start to unfold when it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, D.A. Carson explains this to say, this is not, or Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited or something to be employed for his own advantage. So we have Jesus in glory and splendor and majesty, eternally existing, eternally reigning. He didn't use his deity as an excuse to seek his own comforts, to seek his own, um, his own purposes for selfish reasons to the neglect of others. But we see he used his deity to serve others for their good and joy. So as we come to this, uh, Carson also says the reason that Jesus could do this when he, when he counts equality with God, not something to be grasped. The reason he can do this is because he is God and has nothing to prove or to achieve. You know, Jesus is God on his own with the father and with the spirit. And he has nothing to prove to us. He has nothing to prove to anyone else, nothing to prove to creation. And so because of that, because this is who he is, he comes and willingly, in a sense, he lays aside these rights that he had. And takes on flesh. And so what we see here in verse 7, we see this happening. So we behold Jesus in his glory, in his state of power, uh, in his pre-incarnate state. And then in verse 7, we see the second point. 
Let's behold Jesus' humility in becoming a human. It says, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of others. And literally, this phrase, made himself nothing, means emptied himself. But what exactly does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, although some have argued for that. Um, But that would contradict the teaching of Scripture. And even in John 8, Jesus claims deity for himself. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Equating himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament, saying before Abraham was even born, I am. And the people, the Pharisees, picked up stones to throw at him because they knew what he was saying. And they were thinking, what? You are not before Abraham. (laughs) So we see his equating himself with God. Uh, And and D.A. Carson also helps us understand when he says he emptied himself. Far from meaning he emptied himself of something is idiomatic for he gave up all his rights. He abandoned his rights. He became a nobody. And so we see this in verse 7. When he takes the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so this, this emptying has to do with the becoming a man, not with giving up deity. And that, that, that's what the ESV study Bible says. So, in saying that in Jesus becoming man, he was giving up all his rights as deity. That's what Paul was saying. He gave up his rights to be completely separated from sin, to be completely perfectly worshipped and loved and adored in heaven and perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, not affected by sin. He willingly gave that up to come, literally become a man while retaining his deity, while remaining God. And he came to be surrounded by sin. He came to be rejected and hated. And he came to serve others rather than be served Rather than be accepted, rather than be worshipped and be loved, he was rejected, he was hated, and he came to serve others. And so, this, also this form of a servant is the same word that is used in verse 6 for form of God. And so we see once again his, uh, his outward appearance is speaking to what is true on the inside when he takes on flesh. He is literally a human while being God. Um, also, dear Carson says that Paul does not tell us that Christ exchanged one form for another. He's not saying that Jesus was God and he gave that up and became a slave instead. Rather, without ever abandoning who he was originally, he adopted the mode of existence of a slave. He was always God and he now becomes something he was not. He becomes a human being. And so, for God to become a man is not an exalting act. <laughs> the matter, no matter how awesome we think we are, for God to become a man and be made like us is a humbling act. And so we see in Philipp- or sorry, Hebrews 4, uh, the writer says, We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And then he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus subjected him. He came, he became like us. He lived among us and he subjected himself to temptation. He subjected himself to weariness. 
You know, uh, Isaiah 40 says that God does not grow weary. Um, he subjected himself to hunger. He subjected himself to pain, sickness, disappointment, suffering, and grief, just like we all endure. We've all experienced those things at some point or will at some point. And he experienced those things and yet was without sin. And so we have a high priest who has become like us. So he is come like us in every respect, yet without sin. And so we can come to him in, and receive grace and find comfort and find him relating to us. And so we see this progression here. Okay, we saw Jesus in his glory before he became a human. And now he becomes a man. He becomes human while retaining his deity. So we see this progression of humility taking place. And then the next thing we see in verse 8 is, Behold Jesus' humility and dying on a cross. So we take it down even a step further. And this will come into two, um, kind of two points here. When it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this word for human form is a little bit different than the forms used, the word for form in verses 6 and 7. This word uh, as James Boyce points out, he says, here is the thought of conformity to human experience. Paul says that Christ was not only man inwardly in all his feelings and emotions or only man outwardly in the sense of physical likeness, but he was also man in the sense that he endured all that we endure in this world. There's nothing about being human that was not also part of Jesus' experience. And so this idea that Jesus experienced fully what it means to be a human, to be a man. And so, as we think about that, um, we see in verse 8, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Jesus subjected himself to obedience, and he humbled, just as we and our kids grow and learn obedience, not naturally like that, but we learn and grow. Um, Jesus learned and grew in obedience as well. And he, Hebrews 5 talks about that, how he was made perfect through obedience. And not in the sense that he had any kind of moral um, failure or any kind of rebellion against God, but in the sense that he embraced everything, what it means to be a man or be a human. And what every area where we fail to obey, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And so we see, okay, he became a man. He humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to death. And so just like all men, all women will die because of sin, Jesus willingly took death upon himself. He didn't, he didn't, it wasn't taken from him. He gave himself up for death. And so to think about that, that God will become a man and subject himself to death. So we see this progression. He became a man. He became obedient to the point of death. And then this is the lowest of all right here in verse 8. Even death on a cross. And D.A. Carson says, the language even death on a cross is meant to shock us. Like Jesus died on a cross. Back then, this was an idea of shame and humiliation. This was a symbol of if you're dying on a cross, it's because you were one of the worst criminals. You were opposing the government. And this is what Jesus willingly took upon himself. So we have this, as Jesus experienced obedience, he's also experiencing death. But even the death of criminals. But even more than that, he's not just experiencing physical anguish and physical shame. 
but he's experiencing the wrath and fury of Almighty God for sins stored up for ages past because of our rebellion. He experienced that more fully than any human ever will. Even humans that will suffer for their own sin, Jesus experienced in a degree far worse because he bore the wrath of God for countless people. Whereas these people will bear the wrath for themselves and for their sin. And so we just see Christ in this exalted state and now we see him at the lowest of lows. And now where we find him here, Paul is saying, look at this incredible example of humility of Jesus Christ. He did not count equality with God something to be used for selfish purposes to the weakness of others. But he used that knowing he had nothing to prove No, he had nothing to achieve because he was perfect in and of himself and he needed no worship. He willingly took on flesh and related to us so that he could save us. And let's be reminded too that this death on the cross is not for good and innocent people. He died for people that were rebels against God Almighty. He died for his enemies, people who hated him. Um, As I said at the beginning, we are all after, apart from Christ, we're all after the glory of God for ourselves. And that's who Jesus died for. He died for you. He died for my rebellion. He died for your rebellion. He died for enemies that we could be made children of God. And then this last thing in this section, verses 9 through 11, we see this incredible exaltation in response to this. So let's behold Jesus' exaltation in his reign uh, one commentator explained it like a parabola. If you guys remember parabolas from math, it, it's just a curve that goes like this. So we, we have Christ in his exalted state. He comes down to the lowest of low, and now we see him exalted to the highest place. And it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what we see here is because of Jesus' obedience, taking on flesh, obeying to the point of death, even death on a cross, the Father is exalting him to this highest place of reign, to this highest place of supreme majesty and power and rank beyond measure. And he gives him this name above every name Lord. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that of angels in heaven, that of demons in hell, that of every human to ever live. And some people carry it to even all of creation. Those who have no physical tongues to confess or knees to bow. Creation, every mountain, blade of grass, every star will one day join in this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is huge. As we see, Jesus isn't just a man. He is God in the flesh. He is Lord. And so he's exalted to this place of highest reign. And not that he was never there, but in his flesh now, along with his deity, he is now exalted to this highest place of reign and rule. And God gives him, the Father gives him this name, Lord, which is kurios in the Greek. Not curious, but kurios. Um, And it comes from the highest name that God referred to himself as in the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am. And so 
what Paul is saying here is this Jesus that I'm pointing you to in his great power, in his humility, now in his flesh and deity, he will forever remain man and God, is exalted to this place of highest reign and rule. And this is really a staggering truth. Um, as if we look at Isaiah 45, we see parallel to here in verse 10. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And it says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So we see here God I am God saying to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then in verse 24, it says, only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All were who incensed against him in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glorify and shall glory. And so, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We see in verse 10 that God through Paul is saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And in verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so also in, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so here we say that, see Yahweh saying, I'm not going to share my glory with anything else. I'm not going to let other idols, false gods be praised. But then here in Philippians 2, we see the Father exalting Jesus to this place above every name, to this highest place of rank and rule. And it says that the Father is glorified in this exaltation. In verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see Jesus being equated with Yahweh. And so our only response, what Paul is doing here, is pointing them to this example of Christ and his humility and then saying, but now he is exalted, he is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of you to take on this... to. Uh, to take on his example of humility and counting others more significant than yourselves. And this is what we're going to see as we go back to the beginning of Philippians. But I wanted, want us just to kind of just rest in a moment and just take that in. That Jesus, in his eternal glory from eternity past, willingly took on flesh to dwell among men and women who hated him. He came to redeem us. He came to restore us back to right relationship with God, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for his glory and for his fame. So the second point here, and I'm purposely not doing any application yet, because I want us to just rest in who Christ is and see his glory and see his humility. But we will get into that towards the end. The second point we see is from verse 5. And it's in your, in your life, embrace the example of Jesus' humility. And it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul, as we just looked at, gives a stunning example of Christ and his humility and now says, embrace this kind of humility for yourself. Live humbly for the good of others, for the joy of others. As we saw last week in Philippians 1, Paul was saying, if I'm going to remain in the flesh... 
then I know that I will, or he says, I will know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So he's after the progress and joy of others. He's after their conforming to Christ, as Fudd said last week, and their joy in Christ. And so in the same way, we are to take on this example of Christ. And Paul says here, it's yours in Christ. Go ahead, take it. It's yours. Live it out. And so, um, before we get into the first four verses, let me just take a moment and say before Jesus can be our uh, Savior, or before he can be our example, he must first be our Savior. And that's something that James Boyce was uh, saying in one of his commentaries on Philippians. And basically just saying, we can't just look at Christ as a good example. Okay, okay, Jesus was humble. He denied himself and, and lived for the good of others and say, well, that's good and all, but I'm not going to submit my life to him. I'm not going to embrace him fully and trust in him alone for my salvation. Boy says he must first be our savior before he can be our example. So I just want to challenge you this morning. Um, have you fully embraced Christ and submitted to him? Have you uh, trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and, and said, God, I, I'm a sinner and you're holy and I, des- I deserve only your wrath. And I trust fully in Christ for his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection for my hope and for my joy. And, and if not, then the, the wrath of God presently rests on you and is on you. But unless, and unless you turn to Christ and trust in him, it will remain on you for all eternity. But there is a way out. And we just saw that Jesus humbled himself for the sake of, of sinners to reconcile us to God and to bring glory to the Father. And so this last section, verses 1 through 4, we can get into some application as how this applies to our lives. And we see in, this, in these verses that our last point, that unity comes through gospel-powered humility. And Paul says, starting in verse 1, So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so in here, we see a few things that unity leads to joy and disunity robs of joy. Paul, Paul points them to the gospel, really, and says, you know, if there's any encouragement in Christ, are you encouraged in any way that Jesus has come and taken on flesh for your redemption? Are you encouraged in any way to know, if you look back to verse, um, verse 28 of chapter 1, That the Philippians' opponents will be destroyed, but they will be saved. And that this is from God. Is that bring any encouragement to you, Paul is asking them. He's, then he goes on to say, is there, if there's any comfort from love, are you comforted in any way to know that the God of the universe loves you? Not based on what you do or you're trying to earn his approval, but he has loved you in Christ 
Is, is there any participation in the Spirit, he says to them. And we know that as believers, the Philippians were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit. So obviously they have fellowship with the Spirit, not just some kind of participation, but they have intimate fellowship with the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, any affection and sympathy? Is there any compassion either flowing from God to you, any love flowing from God to you, or even from you to one another? And he says, obviously he's expecting the answer to be yes. There's not just a little bit, there's much. And so he says, from that, based on this truth, and which we could say, based on the gospel, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Basically saying, be unified, live in harmony with one another. And this is, this is interesting, because as we've been looking at Philippians 1, we've seen that Paul is rejoicing in his imprisonment. You know, it doesn't matter where he is, he's rejoicing in Christ. Christ is his joy. The, t- uh, the title of our sermon series, Christ our joy. And, and then Paul says, though, if there's any of this, then complete my joy. And so this word that he's saying complete is more not like Philippians 1, 6, where it says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's referring to bringing something to an end, completing an act. But here in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy refers to filling up or making full. So in a sense, it's like Paul saying, I'm in my imprisonment. I'm not ultimately concerned about me being free or my comfort. I'm concerned about you guys living in unity with one another. And in your unity, I have great joy. Because I love you deeply and you are the body of Christ. And so when you're living together in unity, in harmony, that brings me great joy. And so just to see there, for us to think about for a second. um, Is there any disunity in any of your relationships? And if so... What is causing it? And, and we're going to see in verses 3 to 4, it's most likely pride. And so not only does that rob, Paul says, it robs him of joy, but it's also going to rob the Philippians of joy. And in the same way, when there's disunity within our lives, maybe with friends or family or even people in the church, that that robs of joy for us and it robs of joy for others. And so Paul was longing for them to be unified and to work to the same goal of standing firm in the gospel and holding it out and suffering well. And then going on to verses 3 to 4, we see this really a, a definition of what humility is. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. And, and more than that, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's this idea of, um, Paul says, don't do anything from the spirit of seeking glory for yourself, of trying to just be better than others. But rather, consider others more significant than yourself. And you might say, 
well, I have this high position. How am I supposed to consider this person who's below me as more significant than me? Or I have this gifting, and that means I'm not supposed to use my gifting. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying take on this mindset of Christ, of humility, that in your high position, in your gifting, use it for the glory of God and for the good of others. Use, think of how you can steward this well to serve others. Just as Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, did not hold on to that and and refrain from becoming a man, but he willingly embraced becoming a man and used his deity and used his humanity to serve others. And so, uh, the New Testament commentary says this word used in the original and rendered here humility was by non-Christians used in an evil sense, like cowardliness. And so, that's really apart from Christ. We're going to view humility like you're just being a coward. You're just too afraid to stand up for yourself. But in reality, we know that humility is not just this idea of, it's not an idea of being a coward. It's an idea of saying, you know what? I'm secure in Jesus. And because of that, because he is my righteousness, because he is my hope, because my approval is based on him, I don't have to promote myself. I'm going to promote others before myself. And I'm going to think not only how to take care of myself. Paul says, don't think just about how to consider yourself, which we do. But think about considering others before yourself. Consider others. And, and so, this brings us to our conclusion here. Just thinking about what we've seen true of Christ um, in his, in his high position before he became a man, coming down to death on a cross for rebels, for his enemies, for people who hated him. And now he's exalted back, and we see Paul saying, take this mindset for yourself. And so here, uh, I want us to think about, based on, like I just said, the approval of God in Christ for you, if you're trusting Christ, based on that approval, how can you live out this humility? How can you model this humility of Christ, taking this mindset upon yourself? And just to, just imagine what this will look like if here at Remedy, if everyone lived like this. Um, just think about how marriages would flourish. We would have husbands who think, okay, I've just had a long day at work and I'm not going to come home just to serve myself. I'm going to think, how can I serve my wife? How can I serve my kids? I'm going to count them as more significant than myself. And even though I'm exhausted, and even though in my flesh and in my sinfulness I don't want to, I'm going to, just as Christ set aside his rights, in a sense, and we really we don't have any rights, but and we're going to model that by serving our kids, by serving our wives. And wives, in the same way, Maybe you've been home or maybe you've been at work. Maybe you've been with the kids all day and your husband comes home and you're, you're just exhausted. Take this mindset of Christ upon yourself. How can I serve my husband for his joy in Jesus? Um, think how marriages would just flourish and how awesome a picture of Christ in the church that would be to a world that is starving for Redemption, starving for purpose and meaning. Marriages that are starving for healing. Think how God can use that. And maybe marriages here that are starving for that healing and starving for that redemption. Um, how God would use that 
in our lowest state to exalt his name and to bring redemption, bring healing. Um, Think about how workplaces could be transformed where, you know, we're not at work anymore just to get a paycheck. We're not at work anymore to make much of ourselves, but because of who we are declared to be in Jesus, we can willingly subject ourselves to doing the menial task, to doing, instead of maybe getting frustrated because we're so busy and people interrupting us, we love and respond in humility and serving others. And not to discount maybe what we have to do, but to once again take on this mindset that I'm not supposed to be significant. Jesus is to be significant. Um, Just think about how Schools could be transformed as, as students and kids or you students at Winthrop embrace this truth and you don't live just for your glory, but you live to serve others. Um, you don't just think about getting the grade. You think about loving your professor. You think about loving your classmates. And think about how neighborhoods could be transformed. When we don't get upset with our neighbors because the people below us are really loud in our apartment complex or our neighbors next door having this party, like we take on this mindset of Christ and we love them and we pray, God, would you help me to be like Jesus and to count others as more significant than myself? And so this is just something I've been thinking about this week. Uh, For me personally, I find within myself a lot of these things where, you know, at work, it's like, don't interrupt me. <laughs> I'm doing this. Or um, if I'm at home, I'm rechecking my email or I'm reading a book. And this is what I've kind of determined in my mind. Okay, this is what I'm going to do when I get home. And then my wife wants to talk to me or wants my opinion on something. And I feel within my heart a frustration or anger. Even if it doesn't show, I feel it. And I'm counting myself more significant than her. And I'm not modeling Christ at all. And the same goes with roommates or um, or children and parents, how we can model this to one another. So uh, this is just an awesome text for us to really think through. And um, ultimately, we're not after a mindset. You know, ultimately, we're not after just this disposition of humility. We're after being like Jesus and conforming to his image. And we're after the glory of God. And so, um, as, we, as we move from this time into worship, just going back to verses 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he reigns, that he is exalted, and he is equal with the Father. He is God. Yahweh of the Old Testament, Jesus says, I am. And so... This morning, as I said before, if you have not embraced his reign and his rule in your life personally, we would beg of you, I would beg of you here at Remedy, we would beg of you to embrace that. Don't just look to the example of Jesus because he's not your example until he is your savior. And so would you embrace that truth this morning? Come to him in your filth. Come to him in your rebellion and say, I, 
I'm yours. I'm no longer living to try to earn your approval or try to be a good person. I cling only to the work of Christ on my behalf. He is my only hope. And for those that God has already done that in your life, has already granted you that faith and granted you that submission, rejoice in this truth that God became a man to reconcile you to himself and that he willingly endured the cross that you deserve, that I deserve, so that we could be redeemed. What a gracious and humble, merciful act of Christ for, for people that hated him. And so the, the beautiful truth is we don't have to shrink back in this confession that Jesus is Lord. We get to willingly embrace it. And we get to willingly rejoice in his reign and in his rule because his work on the cross is counted as our work. His death is counted as our death. His resurrection is counted as our resurrection. And so let's respond in worship to the one who willingly left heaven in all of its perfection and took on flesh and remained God. And yet in his life, he served continually healing the sick. He served the disciples. He washed their feet and set this example to them. And then he ultimately displayed his, his humility and death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And so let's willingly embrace him and his glory this morning and embrace his humility and, and pray that God would make us more like Jesus and respond in worship. And, and the, like, I, like Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. You have it, so take and live it out. So let me just pray for us. And we'll respond in worship through song um, to the one who is worthy, not just of our of singing and words, but of our very lives and laying them down. So let me pray for us and then we'll continue to worship through song. Father God, we, we do come before you right now and confess our need for you. Um, it is not within ourselves apart from you to embrace this kind of life to actually to even love you it's not within ourselves so we desperately need you to work that in us to give us a desire to be like jesus to be conformed to his holiness to be conformed to his image and the beautiful truth is that because of his work on the cross him willingly laying aside his rights, becoming a man and serving men and dying on the cross, bearing your wrath for our sins. Because he has done that, we can take and live out of that approval, live out of that acceptance. So I pray that as we go into this time of worship, um, you would continue to work in our hearts and convict of sin and and lead us to repentance and lead us to a deeper faith and love for Jesus and deeper belief of the gospel. And just pray that as we go from here today, that we would be people who are trusting Jesus as our Savior and looking to him as our example, specifically 
this example of humility. We thank you that all this is possible through Christ and that he didn't, he didn't live exploiting his rights, but he willingly gave them up for us and for your glory. So I pray that that would humble us and that we would just see the beauty of Jesus and rejoice in him throughout this week, that marriages would be healed, that marriages would grow, that co-workers would be drawn to Christ, that kids would be drawn to Christ, that spouses would be drawn to Jesus. We know it's a work of you, but God, we pray for it. We ask and beg that you would do it because you're worthy of it, God. You're worthy of all creation's worship. And one day, everything will bow and make this confession that Jesus is Lord. So may we daily live making that confession willingly by your grace. And so we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.